Good morning. Good morning. If you are with us, um, would you turn your Bible to chapter 7 of Acts? So we were on chapter uh, 7 of Acts and we studied the first portion of uh, Stephen's sermon, one of the longest sermon in the Acts, and we are going to finish it in one um, occasion today. Um, so we will be reading through verse 9 through the uh, verse 53. I know uh, that will be long passage, but uh, try to stay. Um, and this is, again, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this is great summary of God's working in the Old Testament, how the connection works in uh, with the cross in mind, with the resurrection, who Jesus is truly in mind. So with that being said, Acts chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 9. If you are there, would you all stand as we receive the word of God? Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Here is the word. And the patriarch, jealous of Joseph, sold them into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could not could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed men and avenged them by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, "Men." You are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? 
Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as for this Moses who led us out of out from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offer a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan. The images that you have made to worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find the dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom 
you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Father, we receive your word. Give us that open, humble, obedient heart. Help us to cast aside all the distraction. We are in your presence. May your word truly come alive in us. May you speak to us through the Spirit, the Spirit who wrote these words, the Spirit who enables Stephen to declare these truths. May the same Spirit help us, your people, to understand and act. Be with your servant through the Spirit. May he deliver yours, your message and your message alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back uh, in chapter 7 of Acts. We have started um, this chapter and we looked at um, what was happening. This man, Stephen, who was full of faith, full of spirit, full of wisdom, full of knowledge, had a face of an angel. We laughed about that. Have you seen one? Because they certainly saw one in Stephen. Now, a man like that would not be charged against serious charges and have to defend himself in the court. But there he is. In chapter 7, Stephen, we find him standing before Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, defending himself, defending his innocence. What were his charges? He was charged with serious crime, speaking against God, speaking against Moses, speaking against the temple, speaking against the law and the tradition, the custom. So there he was, standing in front of the most powerful men in his nation. Now, we just read it. I know it was long. But as you read it, does it seem like, does it sound like he is giving a defense? Does it seem like he is defending himself in any shape or form? Or was he somewhat on the offensive, especially uh, towards the end? What was he talking about? And as I said before, he is giving them, these people who are just thoroughly uh, um, familiar with their own history, uh, Stephen is giving them a history lesson. I'm a history major. I love history. This is pretty thorough as it can be. And if you understand this, you understand what the God of glory has done beginning from Abraham up to this point in the resurrection, shortly after resurrection and coming of the Spirit. All that is to say, this is a summary of uh, not of his innocence or defending his faith in some ways. He's doing that, but the focus is this God. The perspective is coming from the God of glory. What he has done beginning to now in the history of his own people, Israel. 
Now, let's jump right in in verse 9. Stephen started with, well, uh, excuse me, actually, just to review, first eight verses, Stephen began this process, this summary, what God of glory was doing. He started with Abraham, and it has to be him, because he was the father, the father for Israel. For that reason, these people, I mean, Israel as a nation, as a whole, they are very uh, fond of him. That's understatement. They are very proud of having a man like Abraham as their father. Yet, Stephen brought him up for a reason, to point out something against them. Now, their behavior compared to Abraham's behavior, when Abraham called was called by God in sovereign calling and and Abraham responded in faith and in just completely trusting God and what uh, Stephen was pointing out in the case of Abraham was the Israelites especially the leader's behavior is completely opposite from who their forefather the father of them exactly opposite Because Abraham obeyed God's sovereign call. Abraham, without a doubt, believed God's promises completely by faith. But on the contrary, these people, the leaders of Israel, would refuse to believe God. They would refuse to see God when God made himself visible, known to men through his son. So. Ultimately, they're nothing like Abraham. They call themselves as sons and daughters, descendants of Abraham, but they do not resemble what makes Abraham great, his faith. So in turn, ultimately, what Stephen's point was, you know what? They love him, they worship him, yet, yet, They rejected him. They rejected his example to be alive in their lives. And then we arrive in verse 9. Stephen talked about Joseph. Right off the bat, in verse 9, Joseph was also rejected. He was sold as slave to Egypt because his brothers were jealous of him. In verse 9, but God was with him. He was sold as a slave, but God was with him. You know, that that statement alone, that in itself is worth series of sermon if we go back to Genesis as well. God was with him. Every juncture, every spot, every difficulty in his suffering, God was with him. That's the best place to be. Now, God was with him. What was he doing? He rescued him. What else was God doing? He gave Joseph wisdom. He enabled Joseph to gain the favor of every uh, people in his every stop. And ultimately, at the end, he gained the favor of Pharaoh. And God then made Joseph a ruler over Egypt. And all these things, once again, I point that out in verse 9. All these things, his, he was saved, 
He got wisdom, received favor from all men around him, and became a ruler, the most powerful man next to Pharaoh himself, because God was with Joseph. So Joseph became a ruler. Then and only then what happened? God struck the region with a great famine. That didn't happen until, until, that's exactly Stephen's point. The famine did not happen until Joseph became the number one man. Now, Joseph was able to, through that, not only navigate Egypt and save the Egyptians, but also he saved his entire family. And Joseph did not just save them, the 75 people, all all of them, but in next few centuries, what God had promised to Abraham would come to fruition. Now, Egypt will be incubator for 75 people to countless people, amount of people, descendants, far greater for you to count stars in the sky, sand, and the ocean. That's what God has promised to Abraham. How is this happening? Through Joseph in Egypt. Now, Stephen brings uh, in Moses in the story. Now, Moses is the one that Stephen would spend most of his time in this sermon. Because Jewish leaders were particularly proud of Moses and Stephen was charged uh, from them that whatever he did, whatever he taught, whoever he was, everything about him was against Moses. Now, when you read the first five books, which is very important, uh, Pentateuch, the most important books for the Jewish people, obviously Moses stands out as a leader, as a teacher. Moses was the leader who led the people out of Egypt into the promised land. And he was the lawgiver. He was the God's representative. Furthermore, towards the end of his life, Moses had prophesied by, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, this is what he said, and he quotes it, Stephen quotes it in verse 37, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, the Lord your God will give you a prophet just like the representative, a leader, a judge, a teacher like me among your own brothers. And ever since that point, the children of Israel have been looking for a prophet like who? Like Moses. And this is exactly what Stephen wanted to establish against the leaders, against the Sanhedrin. What is it that he is establishing? Well, that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they rejected, whom they crucified and murdered, was the prophet of God, was the prophet that Moses was talking about. He was the one, the messenger of God, the servant of God, and they missed it. And he will come to that conclusion. But beginning in verse 20, this is how Stephen introduced Moses. And he begins with birth. But this story begins in verse 20. Uh, Moses' story begins with this phrase, at this time. At this time, 
Moses was born and what was this time. And carefully, Stephen described this time in verses 17 through 19. It was God's appointed time. What was going on in that time? Well, it was time when the Israelites were increased in number. The incubator was working. The Pharaoh was indebted. The entire Egyptian were indebted by Joseph. And for generations, next centuries, and they will coexist in Egypt with grateful, uh, uh, indebted, uh, the heart from Egyptian. Their number were increasing. And also it was the time when a new king who knew nothing about Joseph, nothing how he saved the nation of Egypt, began to recognize how they're becoming a great force and began to oppress them. And it was time when they were killing. It was not enough because God's hand were upon Israelites and oppression does not Suffering and persecution did not stop their increase. So what did they do? They turned to this. They were killing the newborn babies. Now, precisely at this time, Moses was born. It was once again, this is how the story began in verse 1. It was not the story about Stephen himself. It's not the story majorly. It will come to about Jesus Christ, but he's giving you the bird's eye view from the God of glory, what he was doing. This is what God of glory was doing. This was his plan, his purpose, and that exactly is what Stephen was emphasizing. Look at the timing. Timing was just impeccable. Moses' birth was precise. It was appointed by God. Now, for the Israelites, at this time, exile, the slavery in Egypt for four bitter centuries, more than 400 years, it surely felt like God had forgotten his own people. It surely felt like he is not listening to their groaning, but he was and probably he, they felt his promise to Abraham to bless them, to increase them, and bring them to the land that, that belonged to them. Where is God keeping his words? And there was that question. There was that longing and yearning. And that was precisely that time when people's suffering were all time great. Moses was born. God's appointed deliverer, King, was born. This is why he spent more time. Stephen would spend more time on Moses' introduction here. And Stephen said that Moses was no ordinary child. First three months, as we all know, Moses was kept uh, uh, by his own mother, raised by his own mother, but she could not do it in secret anymore. He was exposed, but he was exposed to Pharaoh's daughter and he was adopted as son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, he was a prince. Therefore, he was educated. He grew up in the palace in all wisdom of Egyptian. And it says, Stephen says he became powerful, mighty in speech and action. And he transitioned from that on. For whatever reason, what happened? 
There's something in his heart. Something came to his mind and he wanted to visit his fellow Israelites. And he went, he saw his own people wronged by an Egyptian and he murdered them. He killed them. And he thought his own people will understand what he has done for them. But that was not the case. Next day when Moses was out and he saw Israelites quarreling and he was trying to reconcile these two Israelites. But what happened? This is the word that you have to pay attention in this. And I will repeat this. He was what? Rejected. Moses was rejected. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And Moses realized through this conversation that his killing of the Egyptian was no secret to men. He got afraid and he fled to Midian as a foreigner, and in that land, he got married, had two sons, he became no one, nobody. He became a rancher, 40 years. But when Moses was 80 years old, the time had come, precisely when that time, when it reached at even the peak of the height, when it was precisely the time that God, a glory, uh, plan, he revealed himself to Moses. And God decided to send Moses as the deliverer, as a leader for his own people. Now look at verse 35. Stephen says this, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with words, who made you a ruler and a judge. Who made him the ruler and a judge. If you have to answer that, who made them? The Israelites? The Pharaoh? No. The God of glory made him a judge, a leader over his own people. It's pretty simple because he stated that up until now. But then Stephen asked the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leader, the scholars, the educated people, they know the history in and out. Yet he asked this rhetorical question. Why? To make this point. To show these men a constant pattern in Israel's history. The spiritual arrogance, the spiritual ignorance that they had. And for them to reject God's leaders, God's servants repeatedly. Over and over. They had rejected Abraham, the forefather. He rejected him in terms of following example. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses now. This was their typical response to those God has sent them to save, to lead them. Moses was able to deliver them by performing wonders and signs in Egypt. Now, you have to read this with Jesus in mind. The parallel is just unmistakable. And he made great wonder, performing great miracle at the Red Sea. Moses was the leader. Moses was the ruler of the Israelites. And he was there appointed by God. But the Israelites, what happened? Refused. Rejected him. Rejected to obey Moses in the desert. They rejected Moses, God's own servant. Therefore, by doing so, what happened? 
they also rejected the sender, the God of glory. It was God who called Moses. It was God who sent Moses. It's unmistakable. And that, that, that is something that Stephen pointed out. It was God who appointed Moses as their ruler and deliverer. It was God who gave his living word through Moses, Ten Commandments. It was God, it was Moses that God has sent and performed these wonders and miracles. But through it all, the Israelites disrespected Moses. Therefore, they also disrespected God. They have failed to recognize what God was doing through Moses and rejected him. They were constantly unfaithful to Moses, complaining, grumbling against Moses. And therefore, they're unfaithful to God complaining, grumbling against God. It's their story. This is their history. Now we arrive at Stephen's charge against the Sanhedrin in verses 51 through 53. Look at it again. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Again, Who's charging who here? Who's on trial? Who's on trial? Does it seem like Stephen is on trial? Stephen boldly indicting them. He's bringing charges against them. He called them, you stiff-necked people. What does that mean? Your, your neck is stiff. What does that mean? You're, you stiff-necked people. The Korean people, when they see each other, what, what do we do? We bow. How are you? Good to see you. Right? Your neck is stiff. What do you do? You don't bow to anybody. You're arrogant. You're prideful. You're stubborn. There's a possibility you might be wrong. There's a possibility what you are doing, what you're thinking, what you're believing to be wrong. We're dealing with God. And even to this God who had done wonders and performed miracles and blessed them at, by blessing them, showering their lives with grace upon grace, yet they are stiff-necked people. Stephen says, you with uncircumcised heart and ears, pointing out their hardness of hearts, their deaf ears, to the word of God, to the truth. He's saying, you're like your fathers in days of Joseph, in days of Moses. You're just like them. You are doing the same thing, willfully rejecting God's word, 
You're unwilling to listen, unwilling to humble yourself, unwilling to abide by God's rule. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You have rejected the Holy Spirit. You have rejected and murdered now the righteous one, the God, the Lord, the Messiah, the Moses prophesied. Contrary to your belief, these are Pharisees, scribes, and priests. They believe they're blameless, they're righteous by keeping of the law, by the works of their heart, but their heart is whitewashed tomb. They believe they're holy and righteous. But the, what's the charge? You have not obeyed the law of God. I don't know about you. Who's on trial? This does not sound like a defense. But it is an indictment of who they are, what they have done. And he is saying, this is what the glory of God, the God of glory has done in your history. And in that history, how he fulfilled his promise to Abraham in every step. And this is who Jesus Christ is, the promised one. He's defending his faith. Great sermon. Great history lesson. Because the Abraham and Israelites history is not just their history. It's our history. Abraham is father to all who are in faith in Jesus Christ. What do we learn from this sermon? As Stephen was defending his faith, as he was uh, just giving you the bird's eye view, panoramic view of the glory of God's work. And as he was describing who this Jesus was, the prophesied one, what do we learn? What do we pick up on this? What do we learn? First thing we need to know is this. We need to see God's sovereign grace over his people, his abundant grace for his own people, even in their rebellion, even in their stubbornness and unfaithfulness. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. But we also must see the danger of hardening your heart, one's heart. You can harden your heart against what God is doing over the grace that he has blessed you with. Look at Israel. Even though Israel received unprecedented spiritual blessing and not only spiritual blessing, physical material blessings, unlike any other nation on earth, they were defiantly ungrateful. They were defiantly arrogant, unfaithful. At every turn, they grumbled against God. And every turn, they complained to God. And every turn, they rejected God and his servants, every single one of them. And this is Stephen's point. Who did you not persecute? Who did you not reject? Now, including the Son of God, the Messiah himself. 
Now they have rejected God's own son. Because they simply want to serve God and live as God's chosen people in their own terms, not on God's terms. What do we do in light of this understanding of the God of glory and what the Israelites has done? The good, the perspective we must have each and every day with this God orchestrating has has this plan and purpose in our lives and this bad example we see in Israelites. What do we do? What do we learn? What must we do? First and foremost, we need to recognize the God of glory properly in our lives. You need to fear Him. You need to honor Him. Revere Him. Worship Him. Obey this God of glory. Whether you see it or not, he is working. He is executing his perfect, flawless plan and purpose that he has in your life. The God of glory began from Abraham and it continues on in the church by the spirit. And then we must guard our hearts. That's what we must do. That's the lesson. Not only we recognize and properly treat our God, but we have to guard our hearts. In other words, we have to examine our heart. Is our heart, heart hardened? Is our uh, ears deaf? Is our neck so stiff that we are unfaithful, ungrateful, arrogant? Even after countless blessing, he has given to me, given to you. Do you and I willfully reject God as the Israelites have done repeatedly? Do we resist the Holy Spirit? If you're truly believing in Jesus Christ and say you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and Stephen's point, the man Full of the Spirit says, do you resist the Holy Spirit? It's indicting them. You do. Do you willfully reject God? And you reject Holy Spirit, yet you welcome the Spirit of this world. Do we humble ourselves? Do we confess before God as we sing together, Lord, I need you. How desperately we need you in every hour, in every day. Examination. Last week we gathered here to celebrate our risen Lord Jesus. And we reminded ourselves it's easy for us to live on Good Friday. Repeatedly coming back to the cross, confession, forgiveness. Yet we need to not live primarily, predominantly live on Good Friday, but we need to live on the Resurrection Sunday. We need to live the resurrected life, the victorious life, the new life. We're new creation in Jesus Christ, but 
Christians, we love as much as it is critical for us to believe the work of the cross, what Jesus has done. This is where we usually hang out. Repeated confession and repeated seeking of forgiveness. Yes, we need to repent. We need to receive His forgiveness daily. But we choose not to live in His strength, the power that raised Jesus. And instead we live in sin. Instead we choose to live in fear. We choose to live in shame. We need to live in power. Live in strength. In His love and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what examination would do for you and I. This grand understanding, this eternal perspective that you must have. You are not the God of your life. You are not in control of your life. Unlike your popular belief, you are not in control. The God of glory will orchestrate all things. He's in charge. Look what has happened to the nation of Israel. Every turn and every way, God has kept His promise and led them to where they need to be. But choice is yours to see Him for who He is or reject Him. You could reject His messengers. You could even reject the Son conveniently. As we choose not to live by His way, but choose to live our own way. Let's live in, we're freshly out of the resurrection zone. What does the resurrection mean? Do you believe in resurrection? And let's live on that resurrection zone. That, my friend, it's something that we need to take into our hearts as we study this passage. I want to take a moment to recognize two things as we talked about in our prayer and offer up your own prayer to Him. Who is this God of glory to you? Does He keep His promise? Is He in charge of your life? Do you believe that He is leading and guiding every step of your way? God, is God with you? Do you recognize God to be God? Or do we resemble stiff-necked people like Israelites? Blessings, yes. Miracles, Signs of wonders, yes, we will take them. But the moment it becomes inconvenient and uncomfortable for us, we complain, we grumble, we fall by our own ways. We serve our own version of God, the golden calf, the idol that we made, or do we really truly serve the God of glory? Do we harden our hearts as the Spirit speaks to us, nudges us, 
Are we so hard that we don't even feel his nudging? We don't even hear the word. We don't even know what to say in our prayer. We feel far away as we examine our heart, understanding where we live, who we are. I believe the Spirit to speak to you and what you need to say in your prayer. I encourage you to say it. Now I'll close us up for the worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we had to reflect our heart against your word. In your word, through your servant Stephen, got to see the God of glory working generation after generation. Everything you have done is according to your plan. What you are doing even now, you are in control. You are the God of glory. In our ignorance, in our lack of understanding. Lord, I pray that through the Spirit may we trust in You. May we not make the same mistake as the Israelites have done. Impatient. Complaining and grumbling. Rejecting. Dishonoring what God has done even in our lives. When a thought of ungrateful heart. Father, would you remind us to be thankful for what you already have done. Take us to the cross. But help us not remain there. Help us to burst forth with our Lord Jesus Christ the power that raised them through the same power and strength. May we live this victorious life. Father, I pray that you will speak to us, each and every one of us. And as we live our lives, truly honoring you and demonstrating our faith and trust that we have. I know you will continue to be faithful and leading our lives to the promised land. Father, we thank you for our gathering. Thank you for our worship. And as your people take your heart, your word into our heart, let it come alive. Let it do its intended uh, purpose. Grow us and mature. Sanctify us. Lord. Bless your people. Go with them. Go before them. May the God of glory be glorified in our lives. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.